psychedelics is coming along faster than cannabis. And I think that's, you know, I think that's in thanks to the decades of work that has been done breaking stigma around cannabis. Psychedelics is kind of reaping the benefits of some of, you know, changing public opinion already. And even, you know, with um, Oregon's Measure 109 last year, uh, the Hill reported on a survey that was done shortly after that. And, you know, one third of Americans are already saying that they think psychedelics have medicinal value. I mean, that's, that's like, the psychedelics journey is evolving a lot faster than cannabis has. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. As always, I'm Brian Fields, and with me is my guy, Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, best-selling author, Lauren Wilson. Lauren, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excited. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great out here in sunny Colorado. Uh, excited to talk to some more East Coast people. Yeah, I was curious to know if you were going to ask Lauren where she was located or if you were going to kind of quickly. in New York, right? That's right. A little another New York in the building. And I think chalk that up as another East Coaster for us. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Lauren, before we dive in, I think it'd be great for our listeners to get a little uh, background about you. Yeah. So uh, my name is Lauren Wilson. I am a writer, uh, a self-proclaimed cannabis nerd, just kind of a nerd all around. Um, I've done five books, three of which were on CBD, and kind of, you know, came to the cannabis space through the food world. I went to chef school and worked in restaurants as a chef for many years, taught cooking classes for many years, wrote a couple of cookbooks uh, specific to the zombie apocalypse, and then was endeavoring to write my third cookbook, which is going to be a cannabis edibles cookbook when I kind of got pulled into the cannabis sphere uh, and writing specifically about cannabis science. And so I haven't really uh, ventured forth beyond the cannabis space since then. So I've been writing about cannabis for about five years. And uh, yeah, and here I am today talking to you folks. Yeah, and I'm excited to hit a variety of different topics. But I think for the first one, let's start off with the easiest one, cannabis through food. For those inspiring chefs at home who want to get a little bit into experience into the fuse, What's the simplest way to try the experience without being fearful of overdosing themselves? <laughs> I love that you brought that up because, in fact, the, 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 the title of my forthcoming cannabis cookbook, which I still intend to do, is Edibles Aren't Scary. Uh, because, as you point out, lots of people have not-so-fun experiences with edibles, and I think that with just a little bit of knowledge um, and, and a little bit of math, frankly, and kind of figuring out what dosages might be in each, you know, whether it be a brownie, a cookie, whatever it is you decide to make um, can really help. And then, of course, the, you know, the adage, start low and go slow, especially true with edibles. Uh, you know, don't rush to like, oh, I don't feel anything. I'm going to eat some more. That's that's where most people kind of fall down the rabbit hole, so to speak. So. Um, I think that cooking with cannabis can be really easy, really accessible, really approachable. I personally, um, as a person who utilizes CBD, I make all my own CBD oils. And really, it's that's kind of a great entry point for people. Infusing an oil is an easy process. You don't even necessarily need expensive or specialized equipment. There's some great extractors out there in the market that are easy to use and will produce great results. But you can do it with you know, a, a, heat, a heat-proof jar on your stove if you really wanted to. I use a crock pot. I have a crock pot at home. So um, yeah, I think that cooking with cannabis can be as simple or complicated as you want to make it. And as long as you're kind of mindful as to dosages and, and, and paying attention to the math and that, it's, it's as simple as that really. 
So I, I want to kind of pick at that because I'm curious, right? Like for those who are a little more experienced with cooking with cannabis, they're probably a little more keen to trying a little more. So how do you kind of figure that out, right? If we're having three or four people over and let's say most people's normal doses is just say 10 milligrams, should we start with 40 to 80 milligrams? Or how would you kind of put us on the, the basis for, for starting successfully? That's a great question. I think there's a couple of different approaches. One is you can you can have the you can add the cannabinoids in you can you can have a, an infused salad dressing or something let's say where a person can kind of decide you you tell them okay in a, in a teaspoon there's about five milligrams or what have you and then people can kind of decide for themselves how much they want to add and you can incrementally add whereas opposed you know with a cooked item or a baked item where it's baked in there and whatever is in there is in there that's kind of a less flexible way of doing it. And then as far, I mean, the dosages question is a, is a huge question and it varies so widely for people, right? I mean, if 10 milligrams for some folks is quite a lot and for some folks is nothing at all. So I think that, you know, if I were to err on, uh, if I were hosting people and I didn't necessarily know what their, you know, level of, of comfort is with cannabinoids, I would certainly do something where people can kind of self-direct that journey and then also advise, hey, you know, start off with a small amount and see how that goes. Can I add more to that? Do you, is there yeah, keep, no, I mean, yeah, keep going. And then, yeah, so, you know, if I, if I were then having to think about dosages, I would, if I was doing a cooked item or a baked item, I would always just do something really low. The other thing that, you know, I hear a lot in, in, you know, cannabis dinners and chefs that are hosting these events, and I think this is a really wise way to do it, is if you're infusing all of the food throughout the, you know, multiple courses, you got to make the dosages really low because obviously there's a cumulative effect there, right? I, I know certainly some people have gone to events that by the end of the event, if you're having cannabis like infused items in every course at the end of it, it's like not, that's a lot. That's not so fun anymore. So definitely kind of spreading cannabinoids out over the course of an evening is smart. Again, having people having a self-directed journey where they can maybe take less or none at all if they want, right? Like maybe the second course, like, I don't really want to have cannabinoids with this one. They have the option to, to kind of sit out. I have a question. Yeah. Um, so dosage is in reference to THC, correct? And so uh, there's this whole entourage effect that we're still kind of figuring out from a scientific perspective. How do you kind of factor that into what you pair? Do you pair certain strains with certain foods when you do that? Is, is that something that you even consider in the cooking process? That is something that uh, a lot of people consider. And I think it's a hard question to answer because it depends on kind of uh, the, I want to say modality, but that's not, a, that's not a, a good word for food, but it depends on kind of the way in which it's being processed, heat treated, cooked, whatever. So, you know, if you're, if you're taking a strain that is like really citrus forward, right? Um, then, and you're baking that, then you might end up losing a lot of those terpenes in the process. Whereas... Some people's approaches, which is also an interesting way to do it, is to not infuse the food at all. So like, let's say you have a, you know, a citrus forward strain, you would smoke that and then have food that's very citrus forward. And that's kind of a way of complementing those two things. Um, and then, you know, uh, again, if you, depending on, let's say you make a, an infused oil for a salad dressing, you can do that at a really low heat heat that will kind of preserve more of the terpenes. So then that will be, a, it's a little easier than to pair a citrus flavored food with that because the terpenes are preserved and you can kind of get that experience a little more on the nose, so to speak. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Thank you. 
what is, let's say, a recommended meal if someone wanted to try and they said, hey, Lauren, like I'm, I'm hosting my, my friends, they're they into cannabis, but they've never tried an infused meal. What can I make to, to experience this? <laughs> that is a really impossible question to answer only because, the you know, I mean, it really depends on do you want to have a theme for your meal? So maybe you want to do, you know, like a Hawaiian themed meal, for example. Um, do you, what is your level of cooking ability and expertise, right? There's a whole, there's a whole lot of ways to tackle that question. Um, but if you're, if you yourself are inexperienced with cannabis cooking, um, I would say, you know, start with it. Like, again, infused oils to me are just such an accessible point to start with, with Makes cooking. Sense. Do an infused oil and think about how you could use that over the course of a meal. Um, yeah. A question was, if people aren't comfortable going out and purchasing flour and actually doing the extraction in-house, do you recommend them going out and purchasing a, a tincture that's been activated or kind of just a, like a concentrated oil, like a dab, if you will, and utilizing that to, to infuse into the food? Yeah. So there's different, yeah, there's different ways of going about it. You could purchase a tincture. I don't know that that's the most cost-effective way. I have also heard that people will use concentrates to then melt and diffuse and infuse oils. Um, that being said, and I haven't kind of done a good survey as to what the product landscape looks like at this point, but I know there are a lot of enterprising chefs out there that have been working to develop infused olive oils and all kinds of different products. So um, if you don't want to do an infusion yourself, I'm pretty sure there's tons of options out there for you. I saw one in California has a hot honey infused, and I was interested in making my way out there to acquire that yeah. because, my God, that would be excellent. So, Kelly's got all the good stuff. We're, New York, it's, it's going to happen here. New York, we're on board. We're coming. <laughs> I've almost lost hope at this point of getting our, our act together, but maybe you're right. Eventually, we'll, we'll get ourselves together. So let's, let's slightly switch gears. As a self-proclaimed cannabis nerd, what is one area or one topic that most outside the cannabis industry wouldn't know? Ooh, wow. You know, that's a great question. I think that um, it's really, it's, it, I mean, as two people who are very steeped in the cannabis space, no pun intended, um, I think it sometimes it can be hard to kind of get your head out of that space and realize like how much you know, you know? Uh, that being said, um, I often, as a writer, I'm, an, I'm a writer who thinks about audience first all the time. And I think about you know, the general population who's not steeped in this space, like, what are they thinking about? What questions are they asking? What are they like? What is the, what are their touch points to cannabis? And, and I do get a lot of questions from folks as an author. I do get a, a lot of questions from folks who are new to the space and naive to cannabis. And one thing that always really tickles me is that how many people don't know about the endocannabinoid system and that it exists? Um, you know, once you get into the cannabis phase, like it's one of the first things, like the first science touch points for anybody is like, oh, right, we have an endocannabinoid system, CB receptors, this is how it works, great. Um, but most folks, and I think that, you know, as cannabis becomes more of a mainstream conversation, more people do know this, but still a lot of people don't. So it, that that's definitely one that sticks, sticks out in my mind. Yeah, I think that's so well said. And I, I know, Kellen, we've had conversations, we've had doctors on the podcast, and they are just blown away by the fact that the ECS system is not taught and again, I asked them, like, why not? So, Kellen, why, like, where are we and when is ECS system going to become, you know, where it needs to be? Uh, I mean, we've had this conversation before. I think it, it requires federal legalization at this point. You know what I mean? Like, that's going to be the only real catalyst where you're going to have these massive, massive institutions actually start to implement 
the ECS in medical schools. You know what I mean? I think it's still kind of risky for him at this point with it being not federally legal, which makes no sense to me. But I think that's what it's going to take from a catalyst perspective. I mean, what are your thoughts, Brian? Well, I want to ask Lauren a question. So Lauren, like here in New York, right? Like I feel like sometimes from an educational standpoint, we're kind of behind, right? On in, in Kellen's turf in Colorado, the expectancy of what you know, cannabis is, is, is kind of like secondary now. Like it doesn't even really matter for us here in New York. I still have people asking me, you know, like I'm going to take the CBD product. Will I get high? Right. Like, and that's kind of like the massive disconnect from an educational level. So asking you, Lauren, doctors here, let's say in New York, if you ask your, your primary care doctor about the ECS system, do you think like five out of 10 would know eight out of 10 would know? What do you think there? I think I actually have a, a personal anecdote to share on this exact question, which is that, you know, I think, I think Kellen, your point to federal legalization, pushing education forward is valid. And I think you're right. Um, a smaller way, a maybe more grassroots way that, that folks can have an impact if they so choose. I mean, this is kind of something that I I felt bold about doing, but, um, this doctor that I really admire, uh, Dustin Sulak came out with a book for clinicians, cannabis, cannabis for clinicians. And I ended up buying two copies of it. And I brought one copy to my primary care physician. And I was just like, hey, I don't know how, what your level of awareness, interest, care is in this space at all, but I have an extra copy of this book. I think this doctor is great. Here you go. And, uh, you know, my doctor uh, literally just retired a week ago. So she was at the end of her career. Um, But, you know, and she's certainly aware of cannabis. I don't know how much she knew about the ECS, but she appreciated having that. So that's all that to say, you know, that is one way in which we can kind of push the envelope a little bit is A, just asking your doctors about it. And and if they don't know, it could be enough for them to be like, oh, maybe I should, maybe I should look into this a little more seriously. Um, But I think that if I were to guesstimate, you know, at New York, how many physicians are well-versed on the uh, endocannabinoid system, I it's certainly not the majority. Yeah. It's so sad. It's so sad. So continuing on that, right? For CBD 101, one of your books, for those who are intrigued but unsure when to take CBD, what would you recommend? When is in what time of day? Yeah. So like yeah. if you if you wanted to dabble with CBD, but you're not sure, right? You have some anxiety or late at night, yeah. you enjoy your wine. Like when, when yeah. would you position it? Because I think sometimes with CBD, at least from my side, is that people are concerned about the psychoactiveness. It might, you know, make their day harder. What would you say is like a good first step? That's a great question. And I think that it really depends. Uh, like all things, you know, it's an individualized thing. So uh, with cannabinoids, we have something called this biphasic effect, right? So at one dose, you might experience this. At a higher dose, you might experience the opposite or something different. And with CBD, that can happen. So, you know, folks, I would say probably the number one reason that CBD, that folks take CBD is to help with sleep and pain, probably. Um, that being said, it seems from what I understand, and again, you know, there could be new research that that contradicts this, but the mechanism that helps people sleep with CBD is not sedation, right? It's helping them relax. And so it's not going to make you sleepy per se. That being said, for me personally, if I take a, you know, lower for me dose of CBD, it has a very alerting effect. And that is something that some people experience. So if you're new to CBD, I would say start in the morning and see what happens. Um, If you notice that it has kind of an an alerting effect or makes you feel a little bit more awake, you might not want to be taking it at night. I personally never take CBD past like mid-afternoon because it'll keep me awake. What about you, Kellen? I'm the same way. CBD kind of like forces me to like focus more. 
honestly. And it's the same with like CBG as well. Um, I've been dabbling with that more recently as well. And it totally, it's like, I'm like hyper awake and there's no way I'm going to go to sleep. I accidentally took a CBG gummy <laughs> like two weeks ago at like 4 p.m. And I was up until like three in the morning, just like wide awake. And I was like, what is going on? And I was like, it has to be that gummy. <laughs> I appreciate you said by accident, right? Um, for me, I actually have the opposite effect. When I take CBD, it, it slows me down and it helps me relax. And and again, maybe it's all mental and maybe it's all like in my head, but I sometimes take it as like an alcohol replacement where like I don't want to have that glass of wine, but I want to also slow down and relax. So, you know, I, I pull out the PVS tincture and enjoy that and, and it slows me down. It actually makes me kind of tired. So I wonder, you know, if, if all of my ECS system is kind of screwed up. I don't think that you should frame it in the that your ECS is screwed up. It's just Correct. different, right? Yeah, it's backwards, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 I'm medicine. Right. I'm different and it makes me unique and special. That's right. <laughs> All right. So let's let's stay on medical research. Is there any new research that you've seen from a cannabinoid standpoint that you're excited about? Any new cannabinoids on the block that make you interested or excited? Well, I think that I'm just gen- generally excited about the research landscape for cannabis. And I'm really excited about it. You know, a lot of, there's been so much research that has been done. That being said, there's so much research that needs to be done, you know? And so I, I think that the discoveries that lay ahead are going to be really interesting, especially when you talk about, you know, the entourage effect, that's an area that we don't have a lot of support for that, you know, some people will be yay or nay as to whether or not it's a real thing that's happening. I personally think that there's something to it. And I think that once we dig in with scientific research, we're going to find some interesting things. And then as far as the cannabinoids themselves go, you know, we're in such early days. THC, cool. We've done a bunch of research on THC. Now CBD is kind of catching up for that. But when we talk about CBG, CBN, you know, THCV, like there's just like, you know, there's over a hundred cannabinoids that we have not yet looked into. So, you know, I'm excited about all of them. I know that's not a great answer. And I think that I can't really point to one versus the other because we're at such early stages. I think we really need more research to really kind of dig into these minor cannabinoids. Um, But certainly that doesn't mean that, you know, that doesn't like my, my scientifically like rigorous and, and pure approach to like, okay, what does the data show is very different than what happens on the consumer level where people are just very excited about different compounds and experimenting, experimenting with them and whatnot. So, yeah. You think that's going to be a big challenge going forward because there's so many different cannabinoids and until we can kind of align educational level, for example, like if a, if a consumer goes to a, a product and see CBG and then goes, well, how is this different than CBD? Like we're kind of making it harder for the end consumer. So I guess what can we do as an industry to simplify the experience so that an end consumer can walk into a dispensary and get a product that they that they want or to associate? Is it is it that initial research to kind of line those things? Is it education towards bud tenders? What do you think there? Well, I think that's a, a great question, but it's a really layered and, and complex question because from the consumer education standpoint, cons- I mean, I'm a consumer that is this way. I want, I don't want to do work in understanding a thing, right? And that's, and that's continued as a, as a person who communicates around cannabis science. That's a, a, a fine balance that I have to walk all the time, which is like, how do you communicate complex ideas in an accessible way without overloading people, for one? And so, that being said, I do think that especially when we're talking about you know a polypharmacological compound or, or plant like cannabis 
you know, there is like there are some things that you should understand. There are some basic pieces of science that will help you have better experiences. So I think that consumers need to take a little bit of responsibility in kind of like getting the lay of the land and understanding what they're dealing with and under at least understanding the basics of the ECS, the basics of the how the plant works and the different classes of compounds in them. Um, and then I think from an industry perspective, I you know, I really think we need to ha- be transparent about what we don't know and be transparent about the fact that like, okay, listen, if a customer came to me and asked me about CBG, I would say, all right, so far we have really basic research that points us in these directions. So you might see therapeutic value in these areas. But the good thing about cannabinoids too is that, you know, they're, they're safe compounds. So it's not like a person can be fearful of experimenting with CBG. They might notice like, oh shoot, I can't take a gummy at 4 p.m. because I'm going to be awake till 3 a.m. <laughs> right, but in the grand scheme of things, that's not a big deal, right? It's just a, so, um, so, you know, there is responsibility. And I do think bud bar- tenders do have a big responsibility, um, you know, when we're talking about, and, and, and legally it's a complicated issue. What can bud tenders do? What can, what they can't do? What should they do? What they, they're not doctors. Like it's, it's, again, like I said, it's a very complex answer. I think there's responsibility on all sides, the consumer, the industry, um, and then obviously, you know, research to keep plugging forward and keep figuring things out. Kellen, you want to chime in there? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's just so much research to be done on the on the space, and and personally, I think that you can approach ingesting cannabinoids in one or two ways, right? If you're going out to try to like increase your wellness, if you will, then I think that's a completely different approach, and you should be a lot more open minded to every different cannabinoid, such as CBG or CBD or CBN or anyone that's kind of available. If you are kind of looking into the cannabis space to treat an illness. I think that's a completely different approach and that's more of like a pharmaceutical and like medicinal aspect. And I think you really need to work with your medical professional and kind of, if you're approaching it to, to, to try to treat an illness, it's a completely different conversation. If you're just trying to either have a good time recreationally or kind of improve your well being, then I think approaching it from, um, then I don't think you can harm it. And, and like Lauren said, like most, all these cannabinoids are, are harmless. So you really don't have anything to really worry about except maybe a poor night's sleep, right? <laughs> I, I think that, that was really well said, Kellen. And, and one of my favorite ways of kind of separating the conversation, because I think that's one of the biggest challenges. Everyone just kind of groups it together. Like I want cannabinoids. And that's not really how that approach works. It has to be on an individual need basis. And I'm really glad that you clarified that. So Lauren, keep it on that topic. THCO, seeing a lot of news out there about it. And obviously with cannabinoids being popular and new ones rising. Is THCO the next new popular cannabinoid? Well, it might be the next new popular cannabinoid. Um, I personally myself have not consumed it. I can't speak to, you know, the effects or the experience. I have heard that it is very potent. Is it psychoactive? Yes. It is It is psychoactive. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't want to be a, a word nerd stickler about it. Uh, but you know, CBD is, is technically psychoactive, psychoactive, meaning that it just, you know, creates an effect in your brain. It has some impact. Um, I like to distinguish psychoactive and intoxicating. So THC is intoxicating, THCO is intoxicating. And in fact, it, it, as I said, is very potent. So it can be very intoxicating. And some people have described the experience with THCO as psychedelic. So kind of having that next level, I don't know if like hallucinations are happening, but so um, the popularity of THCO, I guess, remains to be seen. 
Do you want to jump in with a question? No, nerd out. I, I was encouraging you to go. Okay. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, I, when I think, I think about THCO in kind of the same broad umbrella as Delta-8, as these other, you know, um, if you want to call them semi-synthetic compounds that are kind of popping up. And, you know, THCO might be a really valuable, useful compound, whether it be for a fun experience or helping, you know, treat a condition. Same with Delta-8, you know. The, the trouble is that these compounds operate in kind of a legal gray area. So both in the case of Delta-8 and THCO, uh, they can both be synthesized from Delta-9, THC. But what's happening is that they're being synthesized from CBD, hemp CBD specifically, right? Hemp is legal. So you take some hemp CBD, you change it into Delta-8 or you change it into THCO. And so, you know, where we're seeing the most use and adoption for these compounds is are in states that don't have access to legal Delta-9. And that's all fine and good, except for the fact that this, the, the CBD market is not regulated at all. There's no oversight on how these compounds are being made. And, you know, I don't have a complete and thorough understanding as to the chemistry behind them, but from my understanding, the synthesis process can bring with it a lot of other weird compounds, kind of not so good byproducts. And if there's no regulation and oversight as to what's going into these products, there's no testing, there's nothing to validate, there's nothing to show that there's all this kind of muck, let's call it, in addition to the Delta-8 or THCO, that's kind of a dangerous place to play as far as consumer safety is concerned. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thorny beast at the moment from where I sit. Yeah, I think it's really well said. I want Kellen to expand on that because we've had some conversations here. We have not dabbled with THCO though. So Kellen, what's your thoughts? I mean, it's the same as I've, I'm, uh, I have a little soapbox regarding all of these other cannabinoids that are, that are coming from Get up there. the synthetic uh, routes where CBD is now being um, changed into all these different cannabinoids. And I mean, there's a reason pharmaceuticals are really expensive, right? And there's a, a massive amount of paperwork and verification and just insurance that goes into the, even your aspirin. When you go take your aspirin, the chemicals in there have gone through hundreds of different tests to ensure that it's exactly what you're taking and everything in there is safe and there's no side effect, the least amount of side effects possible. And so like the amount of money that pharmaceutical companies spend to ensure that the the API that they're providing consumers is the only that chemical is astronomical, right? I mean, this is why the pharmaceutical industry is so massive. And for all of these kind of garage chemists, if you will, because all of the CBD industry is new, right? The hemp industry is new. So it's a new industry. Everyone's a startup in the industry. So no one has a really robust organic chemistry, synthetic laboratory, right? They kind of piecemealed it together, bootstrapped it, if you will, and they're, they're doing garage chemistry. And at that point, the amount of byproducts that come from these organic synthetic reactions are, are ash- I mean, it's insane, right? Like they're using chemicals that like methylene chloride, very, very carcinogenic. They're using P-sulfonic uh, toluene to do the, the, the synthesis. So, I mean, all of these chemicals that people have never even heard of are very, they're very toxic chemicals. And not only that, it's not like they take CBD 
add these other chemicals to it, and all of the CBD then just goes straight to delta-8, for instance. There's going to be delta-8, there's going to be delta-9, there's going to be delta-10, there's going to be all these other chemicals that we don't even have even identified yet, and you're just being like, all right, willy-nilly, I'll just throw all that in my body and see what happens. I think that's where the biggest danger is to the industry, in my perspective, because we're already fighting this cultural stigma, right? Like, it's devil's lettuce. Like, we're already fighting that from the last 60, 70 years. And now we're going to start creating poison and people, the, the hazards that could potentially consumers could have from ingesting these compounds could really just shoot the whole industry in the foot. Um, so that's my soapbox. Thanks for coming. <laughs> it, it, it's so challenging, right? The, the CBD it's market, it's, it's so frustrating. But I think THCO is going to have an additional layered problem, right? And I think it's just from a marketing standpoint. If you think about it, like Delta 8, we we, we understood the rise in popularity and, and THCO is similar. But the one challenge I think is that when consumers see THCO, they're associated with THC, right? And know they get, they get high with it. And the real challenge is if they can get higher with THCO than let's with normal Delta 9, then I think there's going to start to be this more craving towards it. And I'm fearful, like Warren was saying, that the states that don't have you know, legal That's use important. are going to reach for this and be like, I can get higher. It's THC. It's likely related to T- like THCO and THC. How far apart could they really be? And we don't have to discuss all the other nuances, but people make these assumptions when they can buy a product that it is safe. And and I'm not saying that it's right. And I'm not saying the consumer is wrong, but I think there is this false sense of security that if I can buy this product, it's safe. And it's got a label on it, right? It's got, it's got a label. And no it's one reads crazy. the label, right? Like, that's the crazy part. They're like, oh, THCO. How far off is that is THC? One time, my uncle, uh, he was trying a product, right? And this is for CBD, CBG. He was like, uh, I think my cousin was like, oh, it's like CBG this and like THC this. And he's like just rambling off letters. And he's like, what's next? He's like this. And it's like, yeah, dude, like there's a lot of cannabinoids. And it is confusing. And all he said at the end was, I just want to get high, right? Like that's all his singular focus was. And I think that goes back to speaking towards people's interest and understanding that at the end of the day, we need to simplify it. And when we operate in this gray area, in the gray area, which THCO is, which is kind of weird to think about, it's just going to layer the complexities too, because the politicians don't know what they're regulating and are going to be even more confused when they go, can we just group all these things together? And it's not really how it works. And it could be really detrimental too, because there could be a massive medical benefit for THCO. And then all of a sudden, it just gets kind of shoved into a box because of this negative outcome of the consumer taking it with poor chemistry going on in the background. Even worse, what about like another vape gate, right? If if THCO is all this, like all we need is one bad event where another politician get up there and be like, see, like this person, he's 18 years old, he consumed this, and then he drove, and now all this bad publicity. And now we've set back an industry that already has all these challenges because of all these other like limitations. It's it's definitely going to be one of those cat and mouse games, we're figuring out how can we regulate this effectively clean and how can we make sure the consumer who's craving this, this product can get one in a safe, secure way. Well said. That's going to be a challenge. Uh, so I want to continue on that conversations. Let's talk about the, the psychedelic aspect. You said kind of sometimes people, um, you've never consumed THCO, but they've related that feeling. Do you see psychedelics and the cannabinoid industry kind of merging in the future? What do you see for that standpoint? Oh, merging. Kind of like blending together, kind of like everyone grouping into a category together, saying like, okay, like these two people, we're going to put these two events in one in one group and call it, let's call it the 
stigmatized. We saw that with Gellick Labs, right? Up in Canada, they were originally CBDB focused on cannabis research, and they completely now do cannabis research and psychedelic psilocybin research as well. So they're, they've merged the two. It seems like a natural one. What do you think, Lauren? Well, the, I, again, complicated question because, I mean, merging could mean any number of things. So like from a business perspective... Uh, you know, and looking at the evolution of these two, you know, psychedelics and cannabis, purely from a market perspective, like, sure. I mean, it makes sense that if there's crossover, you know, as a person who's been steeped in the cannabis space for the last five years, you know, now, you know, shifting my focus to the psychedelic space, just as a person who's interested in the science and the sociocultural side of things and history, there's a lot of shared, there's a lot of shared background there. Um, you know, when you, when you put forward that question though, my mind jumped immediately to, oh, interesting. Is there some way to combine these compounds therapeutically, whether it be, you know, as a health and wellness thing or as a a medical thing? And I can't speculate to that. I can't, I don't know psychedelic science well enough. I'm starting, I'm just kind of starting to get into that space, but that's an interesting question. Cause if you look at something like trying to think of like a condition that's commonly, that's, that's been, that's commonly, uh, that's common to both psychedelics and cannabis. You think of, I think of PTSD. Um, so, you know, uh, MDMA is on the verge of FDA approval for the treatment of PTSD. Cannabis has long been used for PTSD sufferers. Could those things, should they be used together? I mean, I can't say again, to, as a science, I can't say that I, that that is a yes or a no, but it's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I think that that, I I think that honestly, that's where the industry could have a huge breakthrough from a medicinal standpoint. And that goes back to the entourage effect. Right. And like, we're talking about like poly pharmacy, right. Instead of the traditional single API, right. Like diving into this poly pharmacy could completely change our understanding and the landscape of of how we treat illnesses and the medicines and, and the whole pharmaceutical space. So I think the potential there is massive. Yeah, I mean, massive is almost understatement, right? We don't know about the ECS system. We're not really sure how either of the cannabinoids work collectively or separately or even, and then blending that with like the psychedelics and the mushrooms, like there's so much to uncover in the next 10, 20 years. I can only imagine, right, the type of breakthroughs from a medicinal standpoint. We are like literally on the verge of just kind of overcoming so many of these unknowns and figuring out maybe for the longest time, We've looked at this the wrong way. We start looking at how to solve problems versus like, let's just lock this in the corner, like you said, Kellen, and and hopefully never have to deal with it again. And people are already combining, you know, psilocybin and MDMA recreationally, right? You've got, you know, if you want to do a hippie flip, you do mushrooms and MDMA. (laughs) I mean, but maybe there's some, you know, like something that's so interesting about the evolution of both of these spaces is that if you look back at the ancient history of use, you know, traditionally, medicinally, people knew something like on an intuitive level, we kind of move forward with these compounds and then science kind of catches up to figure out what, what, what the story is. But, you know, maybe there's some, there's something there already that people are kind of dipping their toe into and figuring out. Have you read the book Food of Gods, Lauren? No. It's really good. If you, if you're just now diving into the like uh, psychedelic space, I, I highly recommend that. It's written by this, uh, really intelligent, like, uh, cultural anthropologist who also has a ton of like scientific background and the way he kind of goes through the whole history of humans and society's interaction with, um, psychedelics, like 
mushrooms is it's pretty phenomenal, honestly. Oh, so awesome. I highly recommend it. Definitely read yeah. it. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Is that going to be a harder stigma for us to fight collectively? Because obviously there are the people who are now coming around and accepting, you know, cannabis as potential medicine, but then you kind of layer on top you know, psychedelics as an aspect. Lauren, do you think that's going to make it harder for, let's say, the older generation to be accepting of, let's say, the the newer potential ways? Mm, good question. I think that at least what we've seen so far, psychedelics is coming along faster than cannabis. And I think Definitely. that's, you know, I think that's in thanks to the decades of work that has been done breaking stigma around cannabis. So psychedelics is kind of reaping the benefits of some of you know, changing public opinion already. And even, you know, with um, Oregon's Measure 109 last year, uh, The Hill reported on a survey that was done shortly after that. And, you know, one third of Americans are already saying that they think psychedelics have medicinal value. I mean, that's that's like we're, the psychedelics journey is evolving a lot faster than cannabis has. So, you know, if I think about someone like my mom, uh, I think when I talk about psychedelics, she's like, that feels like a stretch to her. Right. And I mean, she, I grew I grew up personally, you know, with a mom who was like, just say no to drugs and cannabis as a, as a gateway drug and all of this stuff. So for her, I think psychedelics based on, you know, how I see her reacting, that's like, it's like, she's got to get her head around that. So it's kind of, I think it's a mixed bag. I think if you're talking specifically about the older generation, that psychedelics might be a harder sell. That being said, you know, a lot of people did acid in the 60s and 70s, right? So Right. Yeah. We're not we're not judging them. <laughs> no, and honestly, certainly the, the, not. The scientific evidence behind MDMA and psilocybin is so strong, which I think is. is why it has gained the momentum is it's just moving so quickly with it. I mean, it's literally like it can just show how the brain is being rewired in real time. It's it's phenomenal in terms of the it just is clearly having an effect, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And the long term, and the thing that, that I think is particularly cool is, I mean, the long-term therapeutic outcomes are strong. You know, like yep. it's just it's working. When we look at things like depression, PTSD, substance use disorders, like there is just such strong evidence and such promising, like it's it's like kind of, you know, I mean, there's a reason that psilocybin is a breakthrough therapy treatment. There's a reason that MDMA is about yep. to be approved. These things are really showing huge, huge value. And not only that. You know, if you look at other uh, other pharmaceuticals, you know, the options that we have now for these conditions, these treatments often are, you know, they're like not one-time treatments, but it's not an ongoing, it's not a, it's not an SSRI that you have to take every day for God knows how long. It's, you know, it's a, it's a few treatments. The, the, the risk for de, de, uh, developing dependency is like virtually not there, not for all of them, but, you know, for MDMA, psilocybin. Um, so, yeah, I mean... I'm so excited about psychedelics as medicine. And I think that, uh, yeah, much in the way that I'm excited about the future of cannabis, I think that, you know, we're really, we're really starting to figure some stuff out as human beings. And that makes me really Finally. happy. Yeah. Finally. <laughs> I, I think in order to get where we want to go, though, we have to adjust public opinion. And I think like you were saying, Lauren, is so spot on. It's going to be so challenging because I can only imagine the conversations be, what do you want to legalize next, cocaine? And it's like, no, you're like, we're doing it in a progressive measure for medicinal benefits. And I think one of the ways I think we can do that is if the doctors become more educated in some of those scientific benefits, like you were saying, Kellen, because I think they help switch the opinion, right? When you're sitting down with your doctor and he recommends this approach, it might be one that kind of allows you to take it and be like, I didn't think about that. You know, do you think this is something that I'd be comfortable with? And I think that's the type of conversations that the older generation needs to have with their 
physician in order to feel more comfortable so that when you or I do approach our parents about this, they're not like, this is wild. Right. And I think another layer of that, especially looking at um, psychedelics, I was listening to a really interesting talk last night by from someone who works in public health. And if you look at psychedelics specifically, and like I mentioned, you know, kind of the big, the the big therapeutic applications that are showing the most promise are around depression, PTSD, substance use. These are all conditions that like mental health as a broad umbrella has a lot of stigma around it, right? People don't want to talk about mental health challenges. They don't want to talk about their addictions. They don't want to talk about their depression. It's, it, those are, those are barriers to entry right there. So how do you break, get past that mental health stigma barrier to then open up the therapeutic potential of psychedelics, (laughs) which then in and of itself has stigma around it. You know, it's, it's a very complex multifaceted problem that I think that we need to really dive into in a more holistic way. That was really well said. That was. That's a clip for sure. Yeah, (laughs) for sure, for sure. Since Lauren, since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been the biggest misconception? Ooh, that's a great question. I think that I think that one major shift that I see happening that when I got into, and also as a person who's, you know, engaged with cannabis since I was a young human, so for many years, is that, you know, cannabis isn't addictive. And that's a conversation that, you know, for the longest time, it's like, no, cannabis isn't addictive. You can't become addicted to cannabis. It's like, and, and, you know, the, the fact is that you, that you can, and it's something that, you know, is a hard topic of conversation for people who love the plant and want to see it proliferate. And I am one of those people, but I think that, like you said, as an industry, we need to have hard conversations. We need to be transparent, whether we're talking about semi-synthetic cannabinoids or we're talking about, you know, the the wide range of effects that cannabis has in our bodies. And um, so, yeah, I think that seeing that conversation coming up more and more, starting to have more balanced conversations around these substances because they're complex. The way they interact in our body is complex. Um, we're still trying to figure all of that out and having balanced conversations about anything doesn't make it good or bad. It just, it just helps further understanding and acceptance in my mind. So I think that's kind of the biggest one that I've seen as being of value for the industry going forward, being a little bit more open to talking, having those conversations. Awesome. All right. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests. If you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass onto the next generation, what would it be? Ooh, ask questions, be curious, keep asking questions, keep being curious. There's a lot to know about the cannabis family. And the more questions you ask, the more delighted you'll be, honestly. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Prediction time. Okay. Lauren. It's 2025. Is the psychedelic and cannabinoid industry working in harmony or against each other? Well, I, I'm my gut, like I'm an idealistic human being. And my initial thought was they're working together because why wouldn't they? Why shouldn't they? Kellen? Do, you either, do either of you have a counterpoint to that? No, Kellen's going to go. I don't want to, we got to no, see. I, I mean, I completely agree. I think that there's a ton of similarities, right? And so I was listening to uh, a talk almost maybe last March um, by an individual named Dr. Marcus Rogan. And he was saying that 
it's pretty phenomenal in terms of the chemistry at a molecular level from a similarity perspective, right? So THCA is what is naturally made by the, the cannabis plant. And that actually goes through decarboxylation, which is where you activate it to THC and then you can actually get high. With psilocybin, you have to do what's called a dephosphorylation, right? So there's an almost identical step that needs to occur. And you're, there's enzymes in your stomach that do this for you, right? When you eat it and also when you boil it too. So if you make tea and so it turns in, it literally dephosphorylates it. And so it's a very similar chemistry. So it's it's pretty wild that even on like a molecular level, there's these kind of really similar chemistries that need to occur for it to interact with the human body. So I, I believe that they're only going to continue to, to move forward. And the other point I want to make is that there could be potential that you mentioned the addiction within cannabis. There could be the potential that psilocybin or psychedelics then could treat the addiction that people don't want to talk about in cannabis, Right. What do you the, think of that, right? The, the problems that people don't want to admit they have, there's a solution to those. Yeah, it seems yeah. like a part of it. Well, scientifically, I agree with both of you. But the world doesn't work like that. And from a business standpoint, it's not going to happen. The cannabis industry is not going to want the psychedelic industry to rise in popularity because right now, the pristine bad boy of the space or of like the world is the cannabis industry. It is the hottest, fastest growing industry. And it's not going to want another industry to come forward and to take its shine and to start having conversations and Capitol Hill about just the psychedelics, because unfortunately, our politicians are uneducated. They make decisions poorly and they move so slow. So if there's another industry that's battling for forefront and understanding and education and priority on their list, they're not going to want it to happen. So I believe that it's going to be one of those kill or be killed style industries. And you'll see the industries not want to be closely aligned and might have public opinion pushed against the other in order to kind of put it to the back burner as cannabis continues to kind of fight its own stigmas pushing forward. I think there's a difference. Though. I think that the cannabis industry, you can, there's a recreational aspect of cannabis. Sure. I don't think that there's ever going to be a recreational aspect of the psychedelic industry. Like, I just mentally cannot envision people being able to go to a store and buy LSD and just willy-nilly take it and go out into the streets. Like, that's just, or even mushrooms at that, pick, at that, at that. I mean, you hear stories of people in college running around naked and like just the wildest things happen. So like, I just, I just don't think there's ever going to be recreational like psilocybin floating around out there. I could be wrong, though. But <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, go, Kelly. Oh, sorry. Okay. Oh. Oh, okay. I was going to say, Kellen, I, I'm, I'm on the same page as you. You brought up the same point that I was going to bring up. And I think that, you know, at least in the short term, I, I agree with you. I, I, I can't speculate as to what, you know, the next 50 years will look like as far as drug legalization goes. There's certainly folks out there that advocate for the legalization of all drugs. And I think that there's an intelligent argument to be made there. Uh, but that being said, in the short term, I agree with you. I don't think we're going to see psychedelics legalized for recreational use. And I think that that's one, one way in which the cannabis industry can kind of maintain its, uh, its, its hold if, if, that's what it, if, if that's what it wants to do. I think, I don't know, again, as an idealistic person, I feel like that's like boiling it down to, you know, a pure business argument and a pure industry argument is kind of sad to me because I think that both the psychedelics and the cannabis space um, you know, as far as medicines are concerned and helping people are, are like, they have so much potential. And so to kind of want to 
edge out one medicine that could be really helpful to people is just, you know, why would we want to do that? <laughs> do you think it's the same battle that pharmaceutical industry is doing right now with cannabis? Obviously, we saw Pfizer kind of enter the space, but it seems like prior to that, the pharma space was like, you know what, we're not going to allow this to come forward. And I think there's always going to be that incumbent versus like new challenger, right? And I, I wonder if that's going to be the future. Well, that's a great point. I think that the one thing, the one uh, advantage, I guess you could say, and frankly, I don't view this as an advantage, and I think that it's highly problematic, but from a pure business perspective, I think that one advantage that psychedelics do have is that they're, they seem to be a little bit more patentable, right? Um, and if you want to get into the patent playing game and you want to look at the pharma industry, I mean, that's... I don't think that that's in the interest of public health or healing people, but, you know, there's more opportunity to make money when you can patent lots of compounds. So I think, I mean, that's why we're seeing a lot of money move into the psychedelic space to begin with. Uh, That's, again, like I said, I think that the patent issue is, is one of the huge problems with pharma industry, but, you know. It could, that could give psychedelics an advantage from a yeah. business perspective. For sure, for sure. So Lauren, for our listeners that want to get in touch, where can they learn more? They can check out my website, Lauren M as in monkey, Wilson.com, or you can find me on socials at Lauren Does This. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Lauren. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks, you too. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humiston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.